0: Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD. Specifically, Slackware 14.2. Of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware, and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn, probably, something from this episode. So, let's get started. The next application in the list is Dolphin. I'm not going to get into that yet, though. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about specifically a chapter out of a book that I've been reading. And the the book title might frighten you away if you don't like the same things that I like, but bear with me. It's applicable to more than the title would suggest. The book title is "97 Things a Java Programmer Should Know." I don't know why it's 97, not 100, not 101. I thought I saw a little blurb about it in the pre in the preface, but apparently not. I don't. I can't find it now. I was looking it up to get the exact quote. Can't find it. So I don't know. It must be a marketing thing, but it certainly worked. I saw the title and thought 97 things. Well, that's that's a very specific number. I should I should take a look at this. I actually got the book on. On a Humble Bundle, on an O'Reilly uh, Humble Bundle, so it was one of those things that I picked up and then had around and, and finally just got around to reading recently on my ebook reader as an EPUB, and it's been great, not just because it's an EPUB, but, but also because it's a really good book. I, I feel like if you're not a Java developer, you probably won't get quite as much out of this book as as a, a Java developer would, I've been getting a heck of a lot a heck of a lot out of it because I have been doing a lot of java lately and I've been really really enjoying the insight of that this book provides but there are some chapters that aren't really about java and that's the one I'm going to talk about this time or or one of them that I'm going to talk about today there are some that are just kind of good honestly just good life advice or maybe no actually life advice because there's some stuff about just problem solving that's really fascinating but this this particular one the the chapter that I'm going to talk about is written by someone named Gail Ollis, and I believe that this article... Well, it, it broadly applies to a lot of different areas. To to Linux, certainly. But I think to to even other areas, too, I think. Well, I mean, certainly programming languages. That's what it's written really about. But I think that it is designed... I think that the author intends for it to inspire internal debate. And I say that because the, the title of the chapter is Don't Hide Your Tools, and hide is spelt lowercase h, capital I-D-E. So it's it's a play on words, it's, it's actually referencing I-D-E, which stands for inter, uh, Integrated Development Environment. And an I-D-E is a, if you don't know, it's, it's a text editor, a very fancy text editor for programmers. And they're usually specific to one or three languages, and they have a lot of little features that sort of prompt the developer and and help them manage their code. and And a lot of times, it takes care a lot of, of a lot of the back end configuration and everyday maintenance of your codebase, and it's really, really convenient. I have written Java without an IDE, and I don't recommend it. It's a lot nicer to write Java with an IDE. That's my personal opinion. Um, and I, I, for whatever reason, I never really found, like, the Python IDE that I wanted to use. And I don't really use a whole lot of Python anymore, so that's not something that I have a whole lot of insight into. But there are a couple of good ones out there, and and I, for whatever reason, I just never got into the Python IDE. And I think that was probably a mistake, honestly. I think if I'd... Maybe it would have been better for me to have been using a Python IDE, just so that I didn't have to worry about the stupid spaces all the, all the time. So that's... I, I, I like good IDE, is what I'm trying to say this article says don't essentially don't use an ide now there are a couple of caveats here as i said i believe that this article was written to inspire internal debate so i don't think you're supposed to 100 percent agree or 100 percent disagree with this article i think you're supposed to see both sides and the article itself i think supports that belief because near the end of the article she says none of this denies the benefits of an ide so she says right in the article that, admittedly, IDEs are, are really actually quite helpful. But most of the article... I say I say article because all of these chapters, all 97 chapters, used to be articles published on the internet. They're Creative Commons, I think. I think that it must have been like an O'Reilly blog or something. But O'Reilly compiled them into a book called 97 Things You, you Need to Know About Java. Or, or Every Java Programmer Needs to Know Whatever. So, uh, chapter, article, same same thing. So the, the really quick premise of the article in, in the author's words is, what is the one essential tool that every Java, Java programmer needs? Eclipse, IntelliJ, IDEA, NetBeans? No, it's Javac, or JavaC, or however you say the name of the Java compiler. Without it, all you have is files of weird looking text. Is it possible to do the job without integrated development environments, IDEs? Ask people like me who programmed in the olden days. It is not just, um, it is not possible to program without essential development tools. Given that they are central to the task, it's surprising how rarely people use tools like Java directly. While knowing how to make efficient, effe- effective use of the of an IDE is important, understanding what it's doing and how is crucial. That's the premise of the article. A little bit of a cautionary tale saying it's great to use tools that help you do a job to, to perform a task, but you need to know, you need to understand what's happening at a lower level at some point. Now the example that the article provides, it's an anecdotal little story that I'm not going to read in its entirety, but basically it says um, that there was a project that was using both C++ and Java. The C++ programmers well, so one day, there was a, a change in the way that you interface with the git sort the the um, version control system. It doesn't say git. It says version control system. It was a simple command line change for the C++ programmers, who went on their way without delay. The Java team spent the whole morning wrestling with their Eclipse configuration. They finally got back to productive work in the afternoon. This unfortunate story doesn't reflect well on the Java team's mastery of their chosen tools, but it also illustrates how distanced they were in their day-to-day work from the essential tools of their trade by working exclusively in an IDE. So that, that's kind of the critique. That's the, the negative side. And I think that story, especially, very much reflects what a lot of us struggle with when we're moving to Linux, or when we're learning a new skill on Linux, or when we're learning a new programming language there's this fear i think and and i'll go into whether that's the fear or not but i think that we think that there's a fear and the fear goes something like if i use this tool to make a thing easy then i won't understand the thing and that's understandable because it, there is a that's a reasonable kind of fear to have if you alias a command in your bash rc file then you you there's a real risk that you'll forget what that command is. You'll just never really know what foo does. All you know is that when you need to do the complex thing, you type foo and it all magically happens. Now, I kind of feel like that the, the fear that we think we have, which is if I use the tool to make it easy, I won't understand what I just did. I actually think that the, the real fear is, or we, you know, that we could expand it to, if I use this tool, I won't know how to do the thing without the tool. And that seems like a a very subtle difference, but I think it's a significant one. Because there's a lot of stuff that we do on a computer that we don't really understand. And you can keep going further and further and further back, but there's a lot happening on the computer, and, and nobody, nobody's an expert on all of the things. So I think at some point we don't really value necessarily the understanding of the tool or, or the yeah of the of the tool set that we're using what we're really valuing is in the unlikely scenario or likely scenario I guess it depends that I'm on a computer without access to that tool that I use every day I won't I I suddenly won't know how to do the thing I I won't know how what my options are and in in a terminal, for instance, again, because I think that this article applies to a lot more than just Java, in a terminal, you might alias something like, I don't know, ls dash L H G capital A capital F to just um well ls, maybe that's now you wouldn't do that. Uh maybe L L F, maybe that would be your 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 shortcut to L H G A capital A capital F. You just type LF and that gives you all of those options. And you you've come to like that view of getting a list of your files. And then you're on someone else's computer and you need that list of files and oh my gosh, you can't remember what those options were. Now what? That that's that's the nightmare scenario I think that we all envision when we when we're convincing ourselves to be afraid of convenience essentially. And in the programming language realm, that equivalent is, just like the, the article says, an IDE. So for instance, you start typing in an IDE, and you can't remember exactly um, what the... I don't even know what they're called. Um, that, and that's not because I'm using an IDE, it's just because I don't know terminology about programming languages, because I didn't go to school for this stuff. Um, whatever those things are, when you're declaring a class or a function, you don't remember what they what 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 are what are required. You don't remember. You know it's it's got something to do with public or is it private? Static or not static? Void or int or string or whatever I need. And and you're just not sure. But you find that when you're typing it in in an IDE, it prompts you for the next thing, and then you you kind of can stumble your way through the incantation that is required of the language. For you to write something that works, and I think I I find it personally endlessly annoying that all the different languages have different magical incantations that you need. I understand that 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 different languages are invented by different people, but it, it just seems to me like in 2022 we should have figured out some kind of sort of specification or standard to just say, look, if you're what you're trying to say is that this variable is never going to change, you can use a fancy language-specific term, like final or something, but really just use const, because it's going to be constant. Or maybe, heck, just let's say constant. Let's just type out the freaking word so that it actually makes sense when you read it. You know, just little things like that. But anyway, I digress. The point is, we're afraid that when we're using an IDE, we won't We'll, we'll be trained to to lean on the IDE to do our, our thinking, or that we'll, we'll we'll forego the thinking altogether and just have the IDE sort of fill out stuff for us. And then, again, nightmare scenario, we're on a computer, all we have is a text editor, we don't know how to write a lick of Java, or, or we don't know how to create a class versus a function in Python, or whatever the problem, whatever the fear is. I want to emphasize, though, I don't think these are actually the problems. These are, are are the sort of the gut reactions that we have. These are the nightmare scenarios. And those aren't always rational fears. So I don't actually think that that's the problem here. Because if you think about it, like the bash alias one, right? We don't know what LS-LH capital... Oh, I forgot the G. Lowercase g capital uh, A capital F. We don't know what those mean. Well, dash L we know is list. Dash H, oh yeah, that's human readable. Dash G, not so sure about that one. Dash capital A, probably something about all or almost all. Capital F, don't know, what what could that be? So we're already using things, a lot of us, are already using things that we don't actually understand. We don't know what that means. We just know that when our eyeballs pick up those shapes, we get the output that we like. Now, if you look it up, of course, you'll find out what G and capital A and capital F mean, but nightmares, new nightmare scenario, you're now on BSD using a BSD version of LS, or you're on BusyBox using the BusyBox version of LS. Now what? All your options are different, or some of your options are cha- are, are, are missing, or, or whatever the, the, the case may be, and now you, again, are back to not knowing how to do the exact same thing that you did on your other computer. So I don't really feel like Unix or computing is really about sort of knowing things the hard way. I I think that it I think that there's a lot going for the idea of making it easy for yourself in according to the things that you that you do the most often. I mean that's why we have bash rc. That's why we can alias things. It's why we can make our own custom functions in bash. It's why we can do bash scripting. It's why we have programming languages. The the whole point of it is to make it easy on ourselves. So the fear, I don't think, should be, and I, I think ultimately I don't believe it is, and I'll get into, like, what, what we're really experiencing in my mind. I don't think our fear should be, I'm gonna make it too easy on myself and then forget. Here's what I think the problems are. Number one, the, 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 the first problem, and this is specific to this article, so it has, a, I guess, It has less to do, I think, with with Linux, and more to do with programming languages. But compilers just aren't as friendly as IDEs. And that's just the harsh truth, that's the harsh reality right now. And I think I've mentioned on this show before how nice the output of LLVM, or Clang, or or whatever I'm supposed to call the compiler, I guess Clang, or CLang, or whatever it's called, uh, how nice those errors are and the output of the compiler for rust is really nice like it 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 actually helps you it it guides you it gives you suggestions it it is trying to teach you things when it finds errors you look at the output of python and I, not the compiler per se of python but the the interpreter output of of python and i'm going to argue that that's really not very helpful now there are some helpful bits and if you know what to look for it, it gets more and more helpful but you show that to a, a a relatively new python user and it's useless the output of the java um compiler not not super helpful really so i i just don't think that most compilers are as friendly as ides and i'm not i'm not necessarily saying that that's you know i've never written a compiler so i don't know you know i mean maybe the finding your errors in a compiler maybe that's just waiting until to maybe that's too late but I, I do feel like IDEs it's it's not I, I don't see it as a, a, a cheat I see it as a preprocessor for for whatever compiler you are using now it's interesting to me that in this article the the one anecdotal uh, story about sort of the travesty of not having, of not being familiar with your tool set. It's not about the compiler, is it? I mean, this is just a random article. So, I mean, you know, we could, we can change the story, but I mean, I am talking about this article. And, and so it's interesting to note that the story of the big disaster isn't about the thing being critiqued, it's, it's about, just not knowing how to do version control, and I, 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 to me, that's a lot different than saying, well, your IDE is helping you too much in in l- learning or or using a language, because your version control command for your IDE has nothing to do with with any of that. So that's kind of interesting to me that that the one supporting story in an article about, hey, you should learn more about your compiler or your toolset, rather, or, you know, the languages, the the SDK, essentially, and and less about your IDE. The one example was, well, the one time I saw everyone fail was because they didn't know their IDE's configuration options very well. So that's just worth, I think, noting. The other problem is that you, is, I think, when, when you're, when you're aliasing a command, that you're afraid you're never gonna remember, or when you're using an IDE for a language that you're afraid you're never really gonna learn. I think the problem that we're really afraid of is that you'll, that you'll never take the time to look up the information. And I think we do that a lot. I know I do that a lot. I use commands with short options, and no clue what those short options mean. Like I say, it's just your eyeball sees a shape, and it gives you the output that you like, and so you remember to use the same shape again. Dash capital F stands for classify, if you didn't know. That's what the capital F does, it puts the little icon, or not the icons, the little characters, after the names of a of a list. So if you list a bunch of text files, uh, they'll get nothing. If you list a bunch of directories, they'll have a slash, a trailing slash. Binaries get a little asterisk and so on. Uh, I think what is it? Links get like an at sign or something. So yeah, that that's what that does. And the capital A, I don't know what that does. I think it's almost all. I'm almost sure that's what it is. Man, ls dash A almost dash dash almost dash all. So the, my point, which means to omit the dot and the double dot at the start of the the list. So my my point is that short options in a way are just aliases of long options, right? I mean, I know that short options, I think, I'm pretty sure, short options preceded long options, so I understand that that's not accurate, but what I'm saying is that long options are self-documenting, they're friendly, they're the IDE of a command, whereas the short options are obscure and relatively meaningless, and so they're the thing that you're actually sort of like, quote-unquote, understanding. That's the command but your long option helps you remember those short options it helps you remember what you're actually doing it cuts to the chase it gets to the it gets it, it gets past the tooling and gets straight to the the task so that's the second problem right first is compilers aren't friendly and IDEs are the second one is that we're we're afraid that we're not going to look up the knowledge in the first place third problem i believe is that we're not necessarily putting ourselves in a situation that requires us to understand a thing. So when we're sitting around thinking, oh, if I do this, I'll never understand what I'm doing. I'll never really learn the thing. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem might be that you're not, you're not putting yourself in a situation where you have to understand the thing. So for instance, and again, this goes back to the difference between a Linux and a BSD version of a command, why do you need the dash capital F? Or why do you want the dash lowercase g? Or the h, or not the h, the... well, yeah, sure, the h. Or the capital A, or whatever. Like, why are those options important to you? Not what are the options, how can I remember the options, but why is the option something that I want to use? If you ask yourself that, then, then suddenly you're not worried about whether it's a dash triangle or a dash square. Or a dash dash word you're just worried about how do i achieve that goal if you don't know you can go to the man page and look for the goal look for the thing that will help you accomplish the goal and if it's a dash triangle on one system and a dashed square on another system doesn't matter. Now you know, and you know the questions to ask. Same goes for an IDE. Does it really matter that you can't remember that something, whether something is supposed to be public or private? What you really need to know ultimately, and frankly the thing that an IDE doesn't tell you anyway, is why it's important that it would be private or public. When can something be private? When does something need to be public? Now an IDE might prompt you to tell you that a function that you had made public doesn't need to be public based on the code that you've written so far, and that you could change it to private safely. But again, if you don't know, then whether you're doing that in a text editor or an IDE, it doesn't really matter. and i'm 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 rather sure I, I guess I could have tested it before starting this sentence, but i'm I'm not going to. but I'm rather sure that you could make something for instance public. yeah, I'm yeah, I'm sure. You could make a, a function public and and compile the thing without any any IDE involved. If you don't understand why you've just made it public, the compiler's not going to warn you, or, or it's certainly not going to give you an error. It's not going to tell you, oh, I, I can't continue because this function that doesn't ne- necessarily need to be public happens to be public. It's not going to do that. So again, I don't think the the fear here really isn't that the IDE is going to help you too much. I think the fear is that you're not going to ask the right questions of yourself when you're writing code. And that's easy to fix. Like, all of these things, except the compilers not being as friendly as IDEs, like, these problems are fixable just through personal initiative, which which is good, because that's the only thing, ultimately, we really can control. So, um, that was the third thing. The fourth thing, I think, is experience versus repetition i think that a lot of us believe and and there's truth to it that's why we happen to believe it so you know and we can continue to believe it but i I think a lot of us believe that just repetition is going to help us learn a thing so if we never alias git push origin plus head for instance then surely we will understand we we will now remember git push origin plus head now once again like the third problem if you don't know what that means, I don't know the value of you remembering that sequence of, of shapes on the screen. But let's look past that for now, because I'm, I'm talking about a different issue, which is experience versus repetition. So, if you alias it, then you, you may not remember that specific sequence of shapes, right? You might forget You might not understand git push origin plus head, and that's such a loaded statement. Like, it really is. Git push origin, and then the plus sign, and then head? Like, it is so, so loaded with with subtlety. So, remembering that exact sequence, I mean, congratulations, right? You remember the sequence. But, what happens when you don't need to git push origin? and you need to get push upstream, or you need to get push, I don't know, whatever, private, what, whatever other thi- uh, repo you might need to push to. Well, you need to understand why it's called origin, and especially because that's the default value, it's really easy to look past that. And then why is it plus head instead of head? When should it be plus head instead of head? Maybe it should just be head. So, repetition, yeah, it'll get you typing those words, but once again, it doesn't get you really understanding those words and and when it's when it's four words like that and one symbol that's one thing but i mean what about when it's a command that's two lines long again you'll remember it out of repetition and if you do manage to type it in like once or five times a day for 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 3 months uh every day then i'm sure at the end of all of that you will you you will remember it and probably for the rest of your life it's probably something that'll just embed itself in your brain i don't really know how brains work, but that would probably do the trick. But what I'm gonna propose here is that what's more valuable than that, aside from, again, everything I've already listed, which is like, did you take the time to look up what that command actually means? Like, why those are the words that you've been typing? And then also, are you putting yourself in a situation where, where you have to understand that? Like, have you ever used any repo other than origin? Like, have you ever called something, have you ever used two repos in the same, or two remotes in the same local repo? Have you ever done that? Like, once you do, you start to really, it starts to become internal. That's what really starts to drive it home, like, really highlight the difference. But the other thing, this thing, experience versus repetition, I believe that there's quite a difference between you doing a git push origin plus head to a repository that's just your private repository or it doesn't have to literally be private, it can be public online, but I mean, only one person commits to, and that's you, versus doing a git push origin plus head to a repository where there are 99 other committers. That makes it a completely different sort of, well, experience. And I believe that the lessons tend to be a little bit more profound in those cases, because hopefully you're, you're typing that in with a little bit more care, when you know that there are ninety nine other people relying on you not breaking the remote, the upstream, it's just it's it's a different kind of experience when when it matters when when there's really when there's a lot at stake when when and it doesn't have to be like oh I'm afraid that ninety nine people are going to start yelling at me because I've committed something stupid to the repo that's not it it's it's purely just the idea. That you're working on something that you consider important and real, versus you're trying to train yourself to type a sequence of letters reliably because you're typing them in five times a day for three months, or whatever the magical combination of t- times and days would be. So that is, I think, part of the quote-unquote problem experience versus repetition, put yourself into situations that require you to actually understand the thing that you're doing, take the time to look up the details of what you're doing, and also somebody sometimes should fix compiler error messages so that they're as great as IDE uh, prompts and warnings. I don't think it's about whether you use a tool that makes your life easier. I think you should use tools that make your life easier. It's why I use Linux. But I'm not really afraid that using something that's gonna make my life easier is then going to somehow hinder me from being as creative and as uh, resourceful when I'm without it. Otherwise, I guess I I literally, I guess I couldn't use Linux, right? Because there's a lot of computers out there not running Linux. I could find myself on one of them at any given moment. I mean, I don't, luckily, but I could. You never know. If my situation was different, I might. But I happen to really enjoy my toolset. I like the applications that other people have written to help me do things quicker and more efficiently. I like offloading some of the... sort of the trivial syntax specifics and vocabulary specifics to some other application. I, I quite like that. And I don't feel like I will be... Uh, you know, I, I won't find myself crippled at all without these tools. I don't think that will be to my detriment, because I I have confidence in myself to be able to look stuff up. Because, once again, you put yourself into the situation of requiring understanding of what you're doing, and you start asking questions about the task that you're trying to to perform, the goal you're trying to reach, and now you know the right answers, to, the right questions to ask. And you're able to to find those, the answers to those questions, in documentation. You can just go look it up. It'll be slower. You, yes, it will slow you down, but you still know what to look for, and it's not gonna be that much of a detriment. Ultimately, the sum total of what you learn is greater than the minutiae of the tools you've used to get there, and I, I, I think I can't say it much better than that, actually, so I think I'll just go get a cup of coffee. You should do the same. We'll come back, we'll talk about Dolphin. <laughs> is the file manager of KDE Series 4 Plus. When KDE 4 came out, and I was at the release event, you can hear my report from the event, such as it was, in the archives of this very, this very show. It wasn't. It's not a very good report, actually, as event reports go. It's not good at all. Anyway, KDE 4 was released, and it was kind of a a big deal that it had a file manager, and the reason that was a big deal at the time was because, previous to, to Dolphin, it had been Conqueror that was the file manager, and people really, really liked Conqueror. I'm not gonna talk about Conqueror right now, because that that's in a separate package, and it deserves a whole episode of its own. But, um... Dolphin was just—it was just a file manager, whereas Conqueror was famously a lot more than that. It was—it well, it was everything really. It was—it was the all-in-one application for for pretty much anything you wanted to do on the desktop. It was kind of a, a powerhouse. So, Dolphin scaled back and said, "Look, we're just doing file management." And I didn't care because I wasn't a Conqueror user. I I used Conqueror sometimes because that was what was on KDE three point five. So I, I did I did use it some, but I'd never really formed a, a strong bond with it because I just I, I just don't have that history with it, unfortunately. I, I kinda wish I did, but um when I saw Dolphin, it looked very much to me like what I would expect out of a file manager and it suited me just fine. It... I liked it fine, it took me a little while to understand why I liked it. And now I can easily say that it is definitely my favorite file manager. I am a big fan of Dolphin. I'm going to tell you why right now. First of all, it's based on cute, and I know that just seems like, well, Clatoo just likes cute. But actually, I mean, I I do, I I do just like cute. I wish there was more cute out there. But really what, what that means for me is that it is a fairly modular application. So for Dolphin, you can go into I've see I've I've modified heavily my Dolphin, and so I don't know how to do things outside of <laughs> outside of my modified Dolphin, bearing no relation whatsoever to the previous discussion about avoiding IDEs. So um, I'm going to go into Tools, no Settings, nope view, show panels. There we go. Unlock panels. So that's view, show panels, unlock panels. You can move the c- different components of Dolphin every which way. You can take the URL the little, or URI bar where you, t- you you can manually type in a file path. You can move that to the bottom of the window. You can take the the places panel, which shows you sort of like your, you know, your top five best directories. You can move that to the right-hand side, or to the bottom, or to the left, or whatever. You can get rid of it entirely. I get rid of it. I don't even have a Places panel. But I do have a little button that, when I click it, it shows me the Places panel, like a, a, a drop-down menu with all the entries of the Places panel. You can get an Information panel. You can get a Folders panel, just you know that just shows you the folders versus the files. You can get a Terminal. Just a pop-up little or like a terminal in your you know that follows your dolphin path around, kinda kinda useful, um and and a heck of a lot more. You you can you can do all kinds of cool stuff. There's a filter bar. There's a space information like a um disk space remaining bar, like a bar for that. Um, there's a zoom bar so you can or a slider so you can make your folders bigger or smaller just by sliding. There's a summary bar that tells you how many folders are in the current location, how many files, and then if you start selecting those, it'll tell you how many you've got selected and, and how much disk space those occupy. There's a split view. You can split the the dolphin view so that you, you know, sort of like, I guess, uh what do they call it? Midnight Commander view, where you can have, or yeah, is it Midnight Commander? Um, where you can have a different view of, of two different folders side by side, and I guess that's probably useful if, If you want to drag a folder from one place to another. It's pretty useful. So um, there's a search, a file search, you can show previews. There's just so much in Dolphin that's configurable. It's a little bit staggering because in my mind Dolphin is a fairly minimal file manager. Which admittedly, I mean, I guess it's not. I guess technically it's it's not. But the way I run it, it, it kind of is. I just run it as one big window, or not big window, but like, it's just my, it's just one, one directory in a panel, and I have the filter bar at the bottom, because I use that all the time, I just like to filter stuff out, if I know that I'm looking for a text file, you know, I can just, txt, there's all my text files, that's just how I manage my stuff, um, and, and yeah, like I say, I don't have a places panel, I just have a button that shows me the places entries in a pop-up menu when I click the button, just to the left of my URI bar, I do have a, a button bar across the top for, for for things that I do frequently, like showing previews or not, searching for files, which I actually don't ever do. I don't know why I have that up in my toolbar. I think it's because I want to pretend like I use it, but I don't. Uh, the back and the up arrows, I always use that, or the back and up, um, yeah, I guess they're arrows. And, and the main menu, like the a hamburger menu, as they say little three lines that shows you common tasks and configuration options and stuff like that. I don't have a menu menu. Um, Control-M hides the menu, so I just have that off all the time, because I want to maximize vertical space. I mean, I say maximize vertical space, and yet I have my status bar, I've got the filter bar, I've got my URI bar, I've got my toolbar, so I'm already doing a pretty poor job of, of filtering. You know, I wonder if I could... But I could if I go to View again. Oh, I guess I have to do Control M for my View menu. Okay, so View or was it Show Panels? Unlock. What if I moved my my toolbar to the side of my? No, I can't do that. Apparently, I cannot move my toolbar as far as I can tell. That's too bad. I mean, I maybe I can, but I I couldn't figure it out just now. Uh, configure toolbars. Ah, oh, here we go. Lock, toolbar, position. There we go. What if I... Yeah, I, you can actually make it a side panel instead of a horizontal, like a, a vertical panel, instead of a, um, instead of a um, horizontal... Oh, that's nice. That is really, really slick. I am going to lock that into position and live my life with a side panel for a while. Or a side toolbar i guess that seems very classic kde to me so anyway my point is you can you can make your own file manager this is a design your own file manager workshop called dolphin and you can reposition things you can turn things on you can turn things off you can add stuff to your toolbar you can take things from from out of your toolbar whatever however you want to do it it's up to you it's it's a flexible flexible little file manager but that believe it or not that was just the preamble to why i like dolphin there's yet another angle to this that i I haven't even gotten to yet now technically okay so i guess i can say that's dolphin like that's i'm done with dolphin well no i can't be done with dolphin yet so i forgot to mention a couple of things so first of all let's say that you want to move a file from one folder to another you can do that by either opening another know, splitting your view or opening another window whichever you prefer and then you take the file that you want to move i'm desperately looking for a file that i can afford to move right now here's a demo directory there we go okay so we can do that uh, and i can drag a folder over and hit shift key and it just moves the folder over to that to that location if you wanted to copy instead you can hold down the control key and that copies the folder if you don't hold anything down it pops up a little choice for you a little menu Uh, you can move with a shift copy to control link with control shift or just cancel which is escape so it's it's a really really nice i think that's just one of the most elegant ways of helping the user figure out you know what it is they're trying to do which I really, really appreciate. Okay, I think, for whatever reason, I think that might be... I mean, there's a lot, there's a heck of a lot more, just to be clear. I mean, there's a lot of configuration that you can do. There's a lot of different view modes you can enter. You can decide how things are presented to you, whether they're grouped together or alphabetical or whatever. So there's just a heck of a lot that you can do, and it's really nice. But that essentially is Dolphin. And the reason I'm closing out Dolphin right now is because now the next package in Slackware is Dolphin plugins. And that's a whole other side of Dolphin that obviously technically isn't a part of Dolphin, but I mean it's a package that integrates with Dolphin. And these are plugins that give you all kinds of cool features. Like, really seriously cool features. So one of my favorites, and so... so. It's hard to tell what a plugin is because it just integrates kind of immediately with with Dolphin. And if you're on Slackware and you happen to have, or I, th- I think probably a lot of KDE um, desktop like a lot of distributions that distribute the Plasma desktop, I think a lot of them probably already have Dolphin plugins installed, so it is sometimes difficult to understand what a plugin is. But one of my favorites... I mean, heck, I'll go ahead and say it, it's my favorite, is the git integration plugin. And this is... it, it shows up in the, um, I think in the... general? Is it general? No. Where is this thing? View modes, navigation... none of this makes sense for this. I guess maybe it's just the context menu? That doesn't make sense either, frankly. Maybe it's just turned on by default. I thought I remembered seeing a list of of things that you can activate or deactivate. I mean, indefinitely in, in an older version of KDE and Dolphin, there was a list that gave you, that like said like what what was available. Sort of like Git and Mercurial and Bazaar and all these other things. I, I'm seeing something kind of like that, but it's in the context menu, which doesn't really say. I don't think this is saying. Maybe it is. Okay, maybe this is just how... This is either activating the... I guess I could test it. So I'll turn git off as much as it pains me to do that. I have to restart dolphin for that to take effect. Okay, and now I'll go into a git directory, which would be in code. And I'll go to this git directory. Oh, yeah, there's no... Okay, so there's no git options here right now. Okay, so cool. So that was... that. That I guess that's where it is. It's all been consolidated into context menu. So the context menu, I guess, is where you can turn on and off... Now I have to restart Dolphin again, okay, there we go. Um, on and off, different features, different plugins. And again, I don't I don't remember what's a plugin versus what just is natural for Dolphin to be able to do, but you have things like um, compressing things, extracting things, a Google Drive Actions menu, I've never seen that before, but uh, apparently it's there, add to places, that's not that exciting, um, add feed to aggregator. That's interesting. Add to Juck or Juke collection. That's a a media player that we'll talk about eventually. Um, the b- Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R. Bazaar version control options, and I'll, I'll talk about what that means in a moment. Not about Bazaar, but about Git. Uh, compare files. That's cool. Copy location. Create audio CD with K3B. Create data project. So a bunch of K3B things. Delete, and that's a delete delete, not a send to trash. Um, as you can imagine, I do not have that enabled. Download with KGit, so if you've got a torrent file, you just right-click on it and and, and open KGit, you know, open it in KGit all of a sudden. Um, integrate, integration with Dropbox, integration with Git, um, uh, import into your Palapeli puzzle collection, which we'll talk about eventually uh, link files to activities, mercurial support, mount, unmount, iso image, amazing, open terminal, open a new tab, you you get the idea. It just goes on and on and on. Subversion, tags, view the decrypted, yeah, it's just share, send via KDE connect, just all kinds of things are in here, and, and it's just kind of mind-boggling that you have access to all that through Dolphin. So if I'm if I'm in a git... Actually, I could even just make a new one, I guess. I'll just go to my demo directory real quick. So I'm going to demo, I'm gonna create a new um, folder called Why I Love Dolphin. I'll go into Why I Love Dolphin, I'll right-click into the empty space uh, that that is this folder, and I'm going to go down to Actions, Open Terminal. And that opens a terminal. Of course, I wouldn't... Actually, I don't even have to do that. Why did I do that? Why don't I just instead... I'm in this folder. I'll just hit F4 to open up a little terminal panel at the bottom of the window. Now I've got a terminal exactly in the location that I am, uh, and I can do things like git init. Okay, that's done. So this is now a git repository. I'm gonna close that terminal with exit, and now I've got a git repository. I I can't really tell that it's a git repository because nothing's changed, but I've done that. I'm gonna create a new text file. Call it hello.txt. Now I've got a, a text file, and I guess I should probably put something into it, so I'll open it up in uh, KATE. Actually, it just auto-opens in Emacs because that's what I use, but pretend like it's in KATE to stay with the KDE sort of ecosystem. I'll type the word hello, or the words hello world into it and save it. Now if I right-click on that folder, or on that file rather, I can go down in the context menu to git add and click git add and now there's a little blue plus syst- uh, sim- symbol by hello.txt showing me of course that this is a git active location and that this file has is staged for for being committed. Now if I right click just out in this directory somewhere, I can see now that now that the state of git has changed, the context menu has changed. So now I can do things like git commit I can type a Git message and this is all in KDE, like all happening within dolphin like these are pop-up windows hello world added these are pop up little windows commit that's committed so now the the little badge by the folder uh, the file has a little green check mark which means to me that this thing has been committed and I can right click again just sort of out in the directory I can view the Git log I see indeed and again this is all within dolphin this is like not I haven't installed git cola. I haven't installed some fancy git desktop integration thing. This is just dolphin. I've got a git log in a window. It's great. I close that. Um, I could right click and do a git checkout. I can do a git create tag. I could do a git push, a git pull. If I click on this and add some characters and save it, it now turns the badge, turns to a red little um, up arrow sort of telling me, Hey, you need to, this has changed. You need to add this. If you want to, if you want this to be, you know, there's action required here potentially. Of course, I could also just right click on it and tell it to get revert. And now it goes back to the green check mark, and if I open up the file, it's back to "Hello World." All of that within Dolphin for free, just by virtue of the fact that I've got Dolphin plugins installed. It's amazing, and that's just the Git component. You understand? There are so many other components. I could go out to my photographs or pictures folder, right-click on a pretty picture, and and add it to my puzzle collection, so that when I go to play a to assemble a puzzle. I now have uh, access to that to that picture as as part of, you know, as, as as a whatever you call a thing that you assemble as a puzzle. So, yeah, there's just all kinds of things. Actually, for whatever reason, now that I've said all of that, that option isn't in this context menu. I don't know why. Oh, do I not have... No, I have... Why wouldn't that be added to the puzzle collection? Oh, because it's already a part of the puzzle collection. Okay, well, that was a poor example then. But anyway. The point is that you've got a lot of little plugins, you can do all kinds of things from within Dolphin that are, I guess, tangentially related to file management. And, you know, if you're one of those people, you might say, well, that doesn't seem very Linux philosophical-like. Philosophical, That's too many things for one application to do. But, I mean, that's what plugins are for, right? And And even if it wasn't, I think that all of these functions are related enough to file management that it totally fits into a file manager. And again, the funny thing is that I, I still, despite all of this, I consider Dolphin a minimal file management system. I don't know why I consider it that. Maybe, compared to Conqueror, it, it is. Um, but to me, this is kind of a minimal file management system. It just happens to have a lot of add-ons that I get to use in addition to just kind of the, the bare-bones humble little file management system that it provides, I guess I probably need to stop calling it a minimal file manager. I, even if I just do it in my own head, I probably need to stop that because it's really not. It is It is a very robust file manager. And if I wanted something simpler, I might find something, I don't know, different. I mean, frankly, when I say, when I think minimal, my answer generally is is the terminal. Um, I mean, I know there are other file managers out there that are minimal, that that, that do less than Dolphin, but I do consider Dolphin a, light, a relatively lightweight application, meaning that I've run it on old computers, not on KDE, not on the Plasma desktop itself, but I have run it as an application. So it's invoking KDE libraries, it's making calls to things, but in terms of, like, just running Fluxbox with Dolphin as my file manager, I do that all the time on an old computer, and I don't sense, like, I don't think, oh my gosh, I, I have to switch over to PC... Uh, P P C Man FM straight away because this is just too too much. I guess maybe part of the thing too is that at least in old GNOME and it, it might have changed. I haven't looked lately. In old GNOME, the file manager Nautilus. If you I think like uninstalled that or killed that process, your whole desktop stopped or something like that. It was literally the file manager and the desktop itself were tightly coupled that was i mean that was like i'm talking gnome 2 era so it might have changed with gnome 3 i haven't actually tested that lately but dolphin was never tightly coupled so you could you could invoke it without invoking the rest of the desktop you could close it without closing the rest of the desktop so maybe that's why in my mind it's like a a lightweight file manager i'm not sure either way it's a really nice file manager I'm really happy that it sort of made it into KDE 5. One never knows, you know, I don't know, like, what the status is, but I, I think Dolphin is is a pretty integral part, really, to the KDE 4 Plus experience. And it's a really, really good one. It's a focused one. Maybe that's what I focused, not minimal, but focused. It's a focused one. And it, it focuses on, on on specific aspects of file management, whether file management for you is just file management, or whether it's looking at a bunch of video, um, pictures with previews, or whether it's doing a bunch of Git things, you know, whatever that is to you, Dolphin tries to sort of fit into that that model for you. So it, it is very, very nice file manager. I highly recommend it. If you've not tried it, give it a go. Whether Like I say, whether or not you use Plasma Desktop, it doesn't actually matter. You can run Dolphin without the rest of, of most, you know, I mean, like I say, it's going to be calling kde libraries and stuff like that it is a kde app it's not just like a cute application so the libraries have to be there but in other words you don't have to be running it you don't have to run the plasma desktop just to run dolphin so i urge you to try it out if you're looking for a good file manager and be sure to install dolphin plugins like i say they're they come with the big slackware install anyway so If that's what you're running, then you're fine. But if you're not, and you're trying Dolphin, be sure to also get Dolphin-Plugins. And I've not seen a distribution yet where Dolphin-Plugins is not the name of the package. So I think typically that's what you're going to be looking for. I think that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. Was a lawyer in the city, just doing a job and enjoying it.